Raise your hand if you've ever heard, if you've ever heard the word meme. Yeah, of course you have, right? There are these little um, pithy, short, succinct thoughts that have captured your attention that have, are able to explain something really well in a few amount of words or to encourage you um, in a lot of words or these days to shame somebody else. Yeah, it's, um, it's out there. Those are what memes are. But um, if you moved a kid into college this week, then it's possible that they have on their wall any number of things, their screensaver or on their wall, little things they want to remember. They want to be shaped by those things. Those are, those are memes. And if you think those are new, well, you're wrong. <laughs> People have been trying to remember things and to let those things shape their thinking, things that want, they want to bring to mind as often as they can because they realize as life goes on and other things happen, they'll forget and they need to have this kind of in front of them. That's what a meme does. Well, to use a much older word, a meme is actually a form of catechism. Catechizing is to, to train ourselves in certain ideas that we might remember them, but that we might be shaped by them. And so, yes, I believe memes are wonderful, and yes, I believe you think memes are important, and I would agree with you. And so the question is, what would it mean for us to use memes to remind ourselves about what it means to walk with Jesus? That's what a catechism does. And we're about to read one of the questions from a very old catechism that has relevance for what we are doing this morning and what I'll speak of here in just a moment. And it has to be a little bit longer than maybe just a few words. God is good is a great meme. But at some point you have to elaborate on that. Some of the greatest stories or novels you've ever read actually had something that you most remembered and it was more than three words. So we're going to read one question from the Catechism to shape us about our hearts. And kids, some of these words in here are going to be a little old and a little big. It's okay. I promise I'll talk it out in the sermon. But hear it. Wrestle with it. And let's consider it. What? Oh, by the way, we're talking about the Tenth Commandment, which is, thou shalt not covet Thou shall not just simply, not, it's not about desiring something, but desiring so desperately something that you wish somebody else didn't have it. I, if, if I can't have him, then no one can, she said once, right? It's coveting, and everybody's good at it, and so am I, and we do it with all sorts of things. So what happens? So here's the catechism asking us, what happens when we covet? What are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The sins for, that's just your part, ready? The si yeah, because you know it so well. Here we go. The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. You know somebody in your neighborhood that does that. And if you don't, you're probably that person. <laughs> you know what, in light of that, let's, let's pray for this and many things. Father, we want to hear what is true and we want to train ourselves in it because we know we are inundated with ideas and messages. And, and many of them are certainly worth um, being nourished by, but... Uh, I confess, I'm sure that I'm not the only one in this room that feels like they're so bombarded with messages that they don't know which ones are the right ones. And we, 
we don't know what's true anymore. We don't know how to sift through things. And so this day, Father, we hear of what your word has said that we are always prone to, to becoming discontent. And so these words, as old as they may be and may be full of some words that are a little bit out of our usage, they still examine us and, and perhaps they confront us. And if we, if we hear them and we are caught by them, perhaps we wonder, how shall we ever get unstuck? If what feels more and more these days like a sense of deep discontentment, what, what are we supposed to do? We... In the words of one saint in a very different moment, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so we would ask that you would help us, whatever it is that afflicts us. And we know that part of what helps is to remember that there are so many that suffer desperately right now. Given what we heard from Mindy Bells and what we're hearing on our Twitter feeds every morning and, and increasingly so by the hour, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. We pray for those who now feel um, very threatened. And we pray for the courage of those who remain and of those who seek to honor you with their lives and maybe even their deaths. We pray for them. We pray for those who were already reeling in Haiti and now are reeling again because of the earthquake. For a people so pockmarked by um, sorrow and tragedy and difficulty we would pray also for the strength of your people who are there to render aid where they can, to weep with those who weep, uh, to rebuild what is necessary. Father, we pray for the things that are going on in Syria that seem interminable and intractable. We pray for those few who perhaps have gathered already this morning to worship you in secret, that they too would be of good courage because they know that there is something even larger than the civil war that surrounds them. And for any number of places, Father, in this world who know a similar thing, even if at a lower degree, we pray your peace. Father, we pray for this country, in particular for all those who must make decisions of great importance in government, in education, in healthcare, in whatever domain requires wisdom and clarity. For them we pray, and for all those who are dependent upon them, that you would help us to treat one another with kindness, even when we don't understand, even maybe when we disagree vehemently. We pray that you would help us to be kind to those we meet. And Father, for our body, for the sick, for the weary, for the confused, for the despairing, for whatever things that preoccupy us sometimes for which we have no words. On this day, Father, we ask for peace, that you would remind us of something that is greater than our greatest concern. And if you would be pleased to allow our gathering this day to serve in that capacity, then you would help us. Father, we praise you that you have come, that you are for us, that you are in some ways crazy about your people, 
And I pray now that you would help us both to hear and to heed and to hope in the name of Jesus who gives us a right to do all of those things. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So before C.S. Lewis marries Joyce Gresham, Joy Gresham, at first out of a matter of convenience so that she could stay in England, and, and then before that marriage became a marriage of mutual love, uh, C.S. Lewis has this encounter, this exchange, it's a brief exchange in the film version of the story of his life called Shadowlands, in which he sits down with one of his colleagues who is an atheist and uh, is typically rather dismissive of anything Lewis has to say about God. But here we are um, in this moment, sitting in the university library, and this, this brief exchange happens between him and his colleague about life and about longing. I've always found this a trying time of the year. Trying? To do what, Jack? The leaves not yet out. Mud everywhere you go. Frosty morning is gone. Sunny morning has not yet come. Give me blizzards and frozen pipes, but not this nothing time. Not this waiting room of the world. Tell me something, Christopher. How shall I put this? Yeah. Would you say you were content? I am as I am. The world is as it is. My contentment or otherwise has very little to do with it. Don't you ever feel a sense of waste? Of course. It's almost too subtle. But if I might unpack it just a little bit, C.S. Lewis is saying, hey, uh, given all that you are, given all that you've accomplished, um, given all that you might appreciate about this world, do you, would you say that you're content? Would you, would you have a general sense of, of happiness, of well-being, of satisfaction? Does that, does that describe your experience in life? And, and his friend Christopher says, you know, uh, this is my life, and I'm not really sure if that's a valid question. Uh, contentment? Um, why, why are we even asking that? And, and, and that's where Lewis presses a little bit. Wait, 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 wait. But don't, don't you at some point feel like you look around and you go, there's just such a much, so much waste here that there's, there's so many things that could be better and, and that there's something about our longing that suggests that there might be something more and that we shouldn't just sort of think that a question about contentment is ridiculous. Maybe, maybe there's something more. And, and his friend Christopher kind of concedes there almost with a, missing a beat. Yes, yes, I sometimes feel like there's a waste there's a great waste here that, that maybe contentment is something we all properly long for and we've just given up on. It's a really subtle exchange, and I know it kind of exists way up there in the, what's he talking about? But I, 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 I present to you that scene from that film, that very brief scene, to ask you rhetorically, would you say that you are content? Is that your experience? Do you feel this general sense of satisfaction, of, of appreciation, and of gratitude? Are you, are you not easily perturbed? <laughs> Do you find yourself unflappable? I don't. What about you? 
Would you say you are content? And, and maybe even me asking you that question, there's part of us that's kind of like Christopher saying, like, don't even, what, why are you even asking that question? It's not even possible. Why bother? And, and that's where I think the Bible is coming to us this morning, like C.S. Lewis, to say, wait, wait. Are you sure you want to give up on the possibility that there is this thing, contentment? Are you, are you sure you want to give up on that? Lewis is pressing him, and I think the text that we're going to look at this morning from Psalm 131 is pressing us. It is going to talk to us about contentment, and it is even going to make the audacious suggestion that it is possible. So we're going to listen to this briefest psalm in all of these psalms of ascent that we've been looking this summer. Three verses. How much could you say in three verses? Well, when I do it, you know it takes a lot. Um, we're going to learn three things. The marks of contentment, the path toward contentment, and the key to contentment. The marks of it, the path toward it, the key to it. Don't blink. It'll move pretty fast, Ferris. If you'll stand, we're going to hear Psalm 131. Our central text for today is found in Psalm 131. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned, weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child in my soul, within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from, the time, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. Like I said, it's one of the shortest psalms, and that's good, because anybody that suggest to you that contentment should be complex. That would be silly. Who, who would want to ever seek contentment if it, weren't, if it were going to be complex? I would like to suggest to you that Psalm 131 is going to tell us about marks of contentment, and I think I find two. Two marks of contentment that provide for a sense of well-being, and I think the first one comes in the first line. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Okay, this is not the DSM-5. This is not a philosopher's treatise. Um, this is not even a manual. This is poetry. This is a song that became a prayer. And so to understand its meaning, you've got to deal with the imagery. And the imagery that's here is a heart that is not lifted up and eyes that are not raised too high. What is all of that about? I, don't, I, don't, I, I bet you can get it if you thought about it. What is a heart that's not lifted up? It's a heart that is not so full of itself. It's not self-absorbed. It's not so self-important. And look, um, film does a great job of portraying people who's um, so full of themselves. But you don't have to be Biff in a Back to the Future you don't, you don't have to be that guy in order to have your heart lifted up. You just have to be angry for no good reason. You just have to complain at the drop of a hat. You just have to be pouty at the slightest disappointment. You just have to be a bully. And you already know what a heart lifted up is. Because you think you are everything. And that comes across in the most subtle of ways. I speak from experience. 
If you had your Bible, you would notice there's a cross-reference in this passage to Isaiah 57, in which someone else is spoken of as one that was high and lifted up. It's actually, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Well, who could that be? Well, that would be the Lord. He is high. He is lifted up. And the psalmist is saying, I am not confused about who God is and who I am. I understand my place. I understand my importance, my place in proportion to him. I am, I am not that way. I do not confuse myself with being the Lord. You ever see the king's speech about George VI, right? The British king during you know, World War II who has a profound stammer and he ends up uh, contracting with the services of an Australian speech therapist by the name of Lionel Logue. And there's a moment early in the film where uh, George VI discovers that Lionel Logue actually has no professional credentials. He taught himself to be a speech therapist. And they're having this little brief conversation at Westminster Abbey at the throne of St. Edward, a throne that had been there for 800 years and would only, could only be sat in by those who were going to be crowned king of the, of the realm. And, and there's this little brief exchange and George VI looks away and then he turns around and there's Lionel sitting in this throne of St. Edward's. And Edward is like, get out of that throne! It's only for kings! Get out of that chair! Lionel is, is not trying to be disrespectful and, he, and he's only trying to prove another point. But in that moment where George VI is scandalized that some commoner would sit in the throne of kings, he's, he's arriving at this idea of who are you to consider yourself worthy of sitting in that throne? The psalmist is saying, who, who am I to occupy the throne that belongs to God only? He has left behind a heart that is lifted up. He is not confused that he is God. He has been freed from that. And at the same time that he is not looking so high out of himself, he's at the same time he's not looking down on others. My eyes are not raised too high. I am I am not looking down on you. I am under no illusions that I am more important than you. Um, have you ever, you ever been with somebody that you could tell they would rather be anywhere else than with you at the moment? Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where they felt like, why are they bothering to have any time with you? That, that they won't even look you in the face. They're almost looking past you the whole time. And, and it's inwardly, they're almost counting the minutes until they could be done with you. That, that's kind of self-importance. And when they give off this entire feeling that you are unimportant, that's, those are eyes raised too high. And the psalmist is saying, I, I am not confused about who I am. And, and therefore, I think what, what this first line is talking about, my, 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 eye, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I think it gets us to the first mark of what contentment is. And it's this. Contentment is a freedom from trying to matter. It is a freedom from trying to assert an importance, a worth, a worthiness, whatever it might be. All of us want to matter. It's okay. Kids, you want to matter. You don't, you don't want to just feel like you're, you know, pond scum. It's the same thing with adults. We all want to feel like we matter. But friends, the desire to want to matter can be so consuming that it is the most important thing that we aspire to. 
That is not contentment. Contentment is a freedom from it. And the psalmist is saying, if you find that, you have found something. Now look, I, let's, let's make sure what I use the word matter properly. It's, a, it's certainly a word in our parlance these days, and I don't want you to confuse it with what, how are you speaking of it contemporaneously. I'm talking about the desire to matter as this incessant desire to flaunt your worth, show your superiority, let everybody know that you are the thing. Insert yourself into the center of all ideas and conversations. That's just pride. And when you put pride under a microscope, what you will find is a desperate attempt to matter. And it's a fearful thing to get there. Kids, look, um, a lot of you compete in stuff. You are. You, you're in athletics or academics or aesthetics, whatever it may be. Stuff that maybe doesn't have anything to do with medals or competitions. And, and you compete in those things and you show up at the meet or whatever it was and you do your thing and you give your all and then sometimes you lose. It happens. What is it? 98% of the people that went to the Olympics, they lost. And you feel disappointed. And that totally makes sense. Because if you weren't disappointed that you lost, then you probably really didn't care about winning. It's cool. But here's the thing. When you lose, if it moves from being merely disappointed to then thinking that you're nothing, then, oops, I've caught you. You weren't trying to win. You were just trying to matter. You were just trying to be important because you felt like if I don't win, I'm nothing. Friends, that's not true, but you think that. And no wonder you don't feel this general sense of, it's okay. You're not content. That's a freedom from trying to matter is the first mark of contentment. And kids, you think I'm picking on you. I'm not. Your, your parents, oh, give me a break. They're, they're, they're masters at trying to matter. I'm, I'm a master at trying to convince you that I matter. I'm going to give credit to Stacy Chacon for finding me this one this week. It was a, it's a little TikTok about what adults have to learn but too easily forget about contentment. There's an amazing story about Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller who wrote Catch-22 and Slaughterhouse-Five. They're at the party of this billionaire. Vonnegut is teasing Heller and he says, this billionaire that, whose house we're at, he, he made more money this week than your book will make it its entire life. And Heller says, but I have something that he doesn't have. Vonnegut says, what's that? And Heller says, I have some idea of what enough is. He says, I have enough. This idea of enough is so powerful. Seneca, who quotes Epicurus, says, if you don't regard what you have as enough, you will never be happy, even if you rule the entire world, right? Enough is never enough, the Epicureans and the Stoics say, for, for the person who enough is, is too little. And if, if you can get to a place of enough, what I have is good, everything else is extra, then everything you get is, is a bonus and, and the rest of your life is amazing. But if you tell yourself you'll only be happy if, if I'll feel better when, you'll never get there. The finish line will move, I promise you. Enough is enough. What is believing that you have enough? It is that you are content. Because what he's documenting there is this cons constant belief that you're not enough because you're trying to matter and you will do anything to get there. Because then, if I'm happy, then I matter. 
Contentment is a freedom from trying to matter. And, and that one is a nice bridge into the second mark of contentment. And it's what I hear going on in the second line of verse 1. Not only is my, is my heart not lifted up or my eyes not raised too high, he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. He's talking about the way he relates to the world, how he interprets the world. In my household, my wife has more aptitudes and skills than I can count. But there is one aptitude she does not have, and that is tech support. When it comes to anything electronic, it is a, I'm, I love you, I promise, I love you. Um, there's this thing, she just has this thing, I need help. And, and so they're the running joke around our house is that she will say, Honey, are you saying that I shouldn't worry my pretty little head over that? And I smile and say nothing, and then I, and then I help her search for emails. It's just that it's, I know my limitations, she says, so she calls upon the tech support guy to come help. What the psalmist is talking about here is acknowledging a certain level of limitation that he has with understanding the world with understanding himself, with understanding how God relates to this. In fact, Job says these very lines at the end of chapter 42. My eyes, I've heard you with the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Things too great and too marvelous for me. What he's talking about, what we believe here, what a contentment is, is a freedom from trying to control what you cannot control. That's That's contentment. It's not about burying your head in the sand. It's not about not asking questions. It's not about trying to find solutions to problems. That's not what he's talking about. It's just not being held hostage by the desire for that control. And we are held hostage. We are terrible at this. We are terrible at being told, you're going to have to let go a little bit. You're going to have to loosen up a little bit. Why are we terrible at that? Walk with me for just a minute. It's debatable whether we suffer any more in the modern area than we did in the past era. People can debate that. I mean, the 20th century is, is soaked in blood, and that's just not so long ago, right? But, so we can debate whether there's more suffering in the past or in the future or in the present. But, but one thing is very distinct about our time. If you walk back 500 years and you see people suffering, when they suffer, their first thought or their first conclusion is not to say, you know what, there's probably no God because life just stinks. There can't be a God. They didn't think that. But you come to 2021 and you watch people suffer, do you know how many people will automatically conclude, you know what, there can't be a God because there's just too much random injustice, terror, hatred, abuse, whatever you want to call it, there just can't be. Why is that? What, what is it about 500 years ago and today that people make broadly different deductions even though they're both suffering? One argument that has been made is this. You and I have, like no other time in history, have been able to control things. The weather, you can control your thermostat from 8,000 miles away. You can order a book and set into motion a sequence of events that involve no fewer than a dozen people, and it'll be at your doorstep within 24 hours. That's control. And when you have that kind of control, then this is your thinking. If stuff goes bad in a world that I'm so good at manipulating, then I must be alone. Then we must be alone. Who told you to make that jump? Your culture did. 
And therefore, we are really bad at trying to be free from the desperation to control what we can't control. And look, the last 18 months, hello? Did you ever need a object lesson in that? Our efforts to predict and model and prevent and protect and end, how well are we doing? We're terrible at it. And we want to be free from it. But here's the thing. Wendell Berry is a farmer. He said this at the end of one of his poems he wrote in 1994. We live the given life, not the planned. You can make a plan. Nothing wrong with planning. But how much of our lives, how much of your life did not go according to plan? Raise your hand. Contentment is the freedom from trying to control what you cannot control. Doesn't that sound desirable? Who wouldn't want that? I would, I would love that. But is it even possible? Um, how do you get there? What's, what's the path toward that contentment if there even is one? The path is there in verse 2. Some really vivid imagery. He says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child with his mother is my soul. What do we learn about the path? Let's, let's just take the most evocative image there in the verse that's repeated twice, the idea of a weaned child. Um, moms, you who have nursed or have bottle fed, you don't need some preacher to tell you that when you were trying to move your kid from milk to a more substantial food, what that was like. You don't need to be told that in the effort to get them to trust you, that what you were giving them would nourish them, even though it was drastically unfamiliar and different from what they've been living on from the moment of their birth, you know very well that whatever contentment they might have with the new stuff only came after a struggle. The fretfulness, the kicking, the screaming, the biting, the wailing, if they could use words, they'd said, they would have said to you, why don't you just kill me? You know that the only way you get to the other side of that mountain is through a struggle. And the psalmist is saying that contentment, whatever it might be, in the freedom from trying to matter, in the freedom from trying to control what you cannot control, that is a struggle. It is not just sort of divinely dropped. It is not just sort of magically bestowed. It is fought for. Just take trying to matter. You and I, from an early age, we built an identity around something. Whether we were talented, whether we could impress, whether we were a standout, whether we could tell jokes, whether we had a remarkable precociousness about it, there was just something. Maybe, maybe we built an identity around being different from everybody, being the fringe person. You know, fringe people like to say, I'm just being different. No, you're just trying to create an identity that so that you matter in a different way. But whatever you did, it worked for you. We wouldn't do it if it didn't. I made it all the way to fourth grade before I got a B. And the first day I got a B, crestfallen my world fell apart oh my gosh who told me to, to build my identity around what my report card was nobody had to tell me that 
whatever your story is, you knew very well that at some point it was just exhausting and you were terrified of being a fraud if you didn't live up to that expectation or the perception of who you were. Friends, there was no switch that I could just sort of say, you can cut it out now. It's a struggle. And we're all still struggling with it. But if it's a struggle, it's not impossible. The weaning process is a struggle, but it's not impossible. Obviously, it's happening every single day. And the reason the psalmist is saying that the path toward contentment is possible is what he says. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Which at first part, we go, wait a minute. When it comes to weaning a child, it's the mom who is trying to soothe the kid. To, it's going to be okay. But in this situation, the one who needs soothing is also the one who is soothing. What's up with that? I mean, there's part of us that goes, no way, I can't, there's no way. Blaise Pascal, mathematician, 300 years ago, he said this, the, the, at the heart of humanity's problem is its inability to sit alone in a room quietly with oneself. Try it, kids. Try it. Go in a room, sit in a chair, and do nothing, look at nothing, talk to no one. Let me know how it goes. Do the experiment. Try it. <laughs> Eight seconds later. And that's why you remember what, what Tristan Harris, remember, that, remember that, that documentary that came out last year, the, the Social Dilemma, right? He says a whole generation is being raised on one of these in this sense. When you're afraid and you're lonely and you're angry, you know what this becomes, he says? A digital pacifier. You learn not to deal with any of that. You just learn to drown it in this. Mea culpa. Guilty as charged. Calm and quiet my soul? Nah. I'm just going to see what's on Twitter. That's a lot more interesting. And then do I wonder why I'm not content? Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher, last century, he said this, Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And by that he means when it comes to listening, you you people brood on your stuff because I know I brood on my stuff. I think about it. I meditate on it. I'm not trying to do that. It just sort of happens. I I listen to every thought and instead what he's talking about is talking. he's He's talking about talking about preaching to yourself. He's saying that it is possible to reassure oneself in the spirit of what the psalmist is saying and saying, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Listening versus talking is about calming and quieting, about finding a reassurance. And that then lies the last question we have to answer self. Reassuring ourselves in what and how? That's where we land this plane. What's the key to contentment? It's what you find in verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And some of you right now, your eyes have just glazed over because you thought, oh gosh, I've seen that in a Hallmark card too. How cliche. That's all you've got? Can I have my tithe back? Hey, don't forget that. (laughs) 
there is something far more substantial and profound about what's going on in that verse than just sort of saying, hope in the Lord. Because not only is he trying to communicate something to us that's true, he's actually modeling something for us that's essential to contentment. It's the key to it. He is doing to Israel, if not for himself or herself, what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the difference is between listening versus speaking. He is, as one theologian from the 18th century named John Flavel said, he is keeping the heart. He is taking his heart in hand and addressing it. He is preaching to it. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought you were the preacher, pastor. Yeah, I am, but I'm not going to be there on Tuesday. You have to uh, learn how to address your heart. You have to learn to preach and speak to it what you will forget. Some of you may sound like, that just sounds like cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, what if it is? Oh no, you've caught me. Talking to ourselves, our hearts, yes, it's essential. Reminding ourselves of what is true. And you may think that's kind of bizarre. Like, talk to myself? Really? That's weird. You know what? It's not as weird as you think. And you know, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to let you listen to a guy named Tony Hale. He's an actor. He's a Christian. He was in Arrested Development. Uh, He was in Toy Story 4. He was the spork. Oh, that guy. Right? Yeah. But listen to what he said about his own struggle with contentment. I, I got my dream on Arrested Development, and it didn't satisfy me the way I thought it was going to satisfy me. And Does it, anything? Um, if I think if I, but here's the thing. Anything doesn't if your expectations are unrealistic. And my, I think I came into Arrested Development, because all the times in New York I was like, yeah. all I wanted was a sitcom. I just wanted a sitcom. And I was there seven years, and I was like, that's coming, that's coming. And I gave it too much weight. Yeah. And then I got there, and I was like, oh, the reality, I, uh, just the reality of like, I gave it too much uh, power. And so I think because of that, I woke up to the fact of like, I had been just not been very present. Oh, you know? I might see. I think that when I really look at things, my expectations are really, really, for the most part, just to feel better. Yeah. Like, like well, I, yeah, I, think, I don't think it's going to solve any big problems or that I'm going to launch into some part of some other level yeah. of fame. But like, I'd like to get through something and after I'm through it, not go like, God, I don't, I could have done but better. Don't, and, <laughs> but don't you, don't you, I don't know if you do this. I, I think my time in New York, and I still do this to an extent, whatever I was going through, whether it was, you know, the struggle or life or something, yeah. there was always this fantasy and narrative in my head of like, oh, once that sitcom happens, once this perfect job happens. And for me, it was the job someone else it could be. Once I get married, once I have a baby, right, whatever yeah, sure, it is, sure. then something's going to click in. And right, right, you, right. I gave that thing too much power. And it's just, oh, yeah. you know, and then I, then I was there and I was like, and I've said this a lot, but it's that thing of if you're not practicing contentment where you uh, are, you're not yeah. going to be content when you get what you want. If you're not practicing contentment where you are, you're not going to be content when you get what you want or don't. What he just did there was in sense realizing to himself that he was putting too much weight on things, that he was demanding too much from what he was seeking. Friends, that's him keeping his heart. He's realizing, he's reckoning with himself what he is doing. He's telling himself, I, I am giving this thing too much power. Friends, that's what keeping the heart is. It's part of it. It's, it's one half of it. 
And it's an important half. But what about the other part? What do you put too much weight on? What, what, what do you need to put weight on? What do you need to give power to? When the Apostle Paul, precisely, when the Apostle Paul said there at the top of our worship service in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned to be content. Key word, learned. How do you learn contentment? He got thrown into all sorts of circumstances in which he was going to have to trust one way or the other. But did the circumstances automatically mean he learned contentment? Of course not. What's the meme? That which does not kill us make us stronger? Friends, that's excrement on a steamy hot plate. There's all sorts of things that does not kill you that will make you weaker. So how do you learn contentment in the things that do not kill you? You have to address your heart. And that's where Paul addressed himself with the gospel. When you are worried, friends and kids, on the days that you don't think you matter, do you know what you need to remind yourself of? That you are beloved of God no matter what you've done, good or bad, because of Jesus. On the days where you feel like everything is out of control and all you know is chaos, then what you must do is address your heart to tell you this, to remind yourself of this, that if God was able to overturn death, then please don't rule out the possibility that he could be at work even in the middle of your circumstances that feels like it's spinning out of control. And that is why John Flavel says, in a season of fear and public distraction, sound familiar? He comes up with 14 ways you can keep your heart. I'll just end by mentioning a couple. In times of fear and public difficulty and distraction, you need to remind yourself that the Lord is more tender to you than you are even in tender to yourself. You need to ask yourself if worry has ever served you. You need to recall for yourself the promises that he has made and of your past experiences of his care. And you need to recite to yourself the very commands of Jesus who says, do not be anxious. Friends, this is keeping the heart. And fortunately, you are not alone in that endeavor. You have a spirit to actually help you believe it. But this is your task. You must keep your heart. It is your struggle. But it is that way to contentment. For that, we should pray. Let's do that. Father, uh, let it begin with me. Uh, teach me to do what feels so unnatural. What too often feels like it would be pointless. And then... Would you teach us all to rather than listen to ourselves so much, but to learn to take our hearts in hand and address it in love, and knowing that there is something greater than even our greatest sin and our greatest fear. And would you then, by your Spirit, confirm to us its truth in whatever pit of despair we find ourselves in? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.
There's someone in our midst today that many of you know. Lee Mosley is here with his wife, Nancy. Lee Mosley was one of the pastors here from 2,000 years ago, right? Close to that. <laughs> Welcome, Lee. Close enough? Please greet Lee and Nancy if you know them or even if you don't. Thank you for being here. In the words of Sergeant Phil on Hill Street Blues, beloved, let's be careful out there. May mutual love continue. May we not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember, we, those who are in prison, as though we were in prison with them. May we all be content with what we have. And remember that God has promised you, I will never leave you or forsake you. May true contentment and the ever-present love of God be with you all. Go in peace.